All right, well, we've been in a series, uh, mini-series, uh, Priorities for a Pilgrim People. And in this mini-series, what we've been trying to do is think about what it means for us to live as those who are just passing through. This world is not our final home, and so we need to act like that. And uh, uh, this is part four, and I was planning on doing a four-part series, and in this part, we were going to talk about how we, as Christians, living in a fallen world, how do we remain united amidst the differing opinions that Christians hold? Uh, if you've been awake at all the last few months, you know that there are differences of opinions about things that are happening in the world, and Christians ought to be able to have unity even amidst the differences of opinions. And originally, I was thinking, you know, we got to talk about masks versus no masks and things like that, and as I began to study and I began to dive into the text, I really began to think that we need to spend some extra time on this. My sermon that I was preparing, uh, that I started to prepare on Monday, uh, after I was done with the introduction, I thought, well, that's a sermon right there. So I'm going to reserve the introduction. This is an introduction. What you're getting this morning is an introduction to next week. But really the reason is this, is because unity is based in doctrine theology, truth. We need to understand some fundamental realities before we start talking about how we actually enact the unity that God has given us in Christ. How do we actually live together with people of differing opinions? We have to go back and establish a foundation. It's like building a house. Before we're going to start constructing anything, we've got to dig deep and we've got to get a foundation prepared. And so we're going to do that. We're going to look at the foundation of unity that the Word of God gives us. And I'm going to start by asking you to open your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 17. John, chapter 17. You've seen Jesus in the manger. You've seen Jesus among the crowds, teaching, working miracles. You've seen those things. Now here's Jesus in prayer. He's getting ready to go to the cross, and he's lifting his eyes to heaven, and he's bringing his request to his Father. And so, anytime the Son of God is going to speak to the Father, of course, anytime the Son speaks at all, we want to listen, but this is of particular interest because Jesus is talking to the Father. This is an interaction of the Godhead that we're allowed to peek into and see what God values, what God the Son prays for. Verse 1 says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have, have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Pause there for just one second. The Son again praying to the Father, saying, Father, it's time for you to glorify me. You've given me authority, verse 2, over all people, over all flesh. Authority to do what, you might ask? To, there at the end of verse 2, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. What he's saying is, is that the Father in eternity past has a people that he wants to redeem for his glory that they might know Him and worship Him. And He gives these people to the Son, and the Son goes on a mission to redeem and rescue those who are His. 
He has given him authority, verse 2, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Remember back, these are the people the Father has given to the Son. I've given you these people, Jesus, to redeem. He says, I've manifested my name to them. I've done it. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I believe at this context, he's talking about the initial apostles that came, that Jesus was called, or Jesus called to himself, that they might know him, that they would follow him, that they would be the ones to spread the gospel, and they all came to know Christ and had a saving relationship with him, except for Judas, who's named there in verse 12, called the son of destruction. Initially, the apostles are brought to Jesus, and they are the first ones that Jesus really reveals himself to in full. And so he's praying that these people, and he prays for them, look at the end of verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. They may be one, even as we are one. Now skip down to verse 20. I do not ask for these only. I'm not only praying for the apostles. I'm not only praying for the initial ones that have been called. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? Every Christian since the apostles up to today that has believed in the testimony of the apostles of the resurrected Lord. And so any Christian that has ever come to know the gospel has come to know the gospel because of the testimony written down in the word of God. And so he is praying for, get a load of this, Jesus is praying for us. He is praying for you and I. He is praying for those who would come to believe. That is me, that is you, and that is every Christian. Believe in me through their word. Verse 21, what is he praying for? That they may all be one. That they might be one. Unity. What kind of oneness? Look at this. Just as you, Father are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is mind-boggling. You reading this, I hope you're sensing the gravity of what Jesus has just prayed. He says, I want the church, I want my people to be united. I want them to be one. Well, to what degree of oneness? I want them to have the same kind of oneness that the Son has with the Father, that the Father has with the Son, the same kind of unity that the Father and Son have enjoyed in eternity past. I want the church to experience that. I want them to be one, united. This is at the heart of the work of Jesus Christ. This is at the heart of what Jesus came to accomplish in the gospel, is that his people would not only be reconciled to God, but to one another in a oneness, in a closeness, in a fellowship that would reflect the unity of the triune God we serve. 
So before we're going to talk about differing opinions and masks and no masks and all the other opinions out there today, I want to first just go deep with the doctrinal foundations of the oneness that we are uh, seeing here that Jesus prayed for that we ought to have in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and to do that, I want to now turn to Colossians chapter 3. So now turn over in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Paul is describing the new identity that Christians have because of the gospel. They've been raised with Christ. They are to seek things that are above. They are to set their minds there. Why? Verse 3, they've died. Christians have already died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. We are united to Christ. We have a union with Christ. We're hidden in Him, in God. Christ is our life, and when He appears, we will also appear with Him in glory. We have a fundamentally new identity. This is who we are as Christians. We are in Christ. Therefore, verse 5, now some implications. What do you do? If you're in Christ, if your life is His, what do you do? Put to death all kinds of sin. You see it there. Anything that's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. He's calling upon them, now in light of who they actually are, in light of the gospel identity that they now have, they are to turn from sin. No, 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 they're to kill sin, put to death sin, and to live lives of purity. Verse 9, don't lie to one another. Seeing that you've put off, put off, the old self. It's like old filthy rags that you're wearing Take them off. They're filthy. Throw them aside. And what are you to do instead? Verse 10, have put on the new self. New self. The new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You have a new identity. You have a new uh, standing in Christ. You have a new calling before God. No longer can you be defined by sin. Now you ought to be defined by your uh, relationship to God. And then he says this, and this is where we're going to land and focus for a little bit. Verse 11, here, here, and that here is the new identity he's just been describing. You see that? In this new God-given identity, that you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, and you are now putting off the old stuff, and you're putting on the new stuff. In this renewal, in this relationship, in this new identity, there is not, Greek or Jew, Circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, for Christ is all and in all. He mentions several barriers that would have existed in the day that he wrote this that would have been barriers that potentially would disrupt fellowship in this Colossian church. He is identifying the reality of living in a fallen world, that there are things that are like barriers that if we don't think about them theologically, they are like walls that inhibit us from actually being able to unite with other people and other Christians in the church. There are barriers. There are cultural barriers. People who have different cultural expectations, cultural norms that might be hard for us to understand. There are language barriers you might have a hard time understanding someone if English is not their first language. Racial barriers, social barriers, religious barriers. And according to sociologists, people, just in general, are very slow to cross barriers. People generally associate with people that require the least barrier crossing. 
So if I have to cross any barriers to get to know someone who's like over here, but this person over here is just like me and there are no barriers at all, we're just drawn to associate with the people that require us not to pass through any barriers. We like to, this is just the observational reality that sociologists and others who have studied this kind of stuff, they just notice that humanity likes to be in groups with people who are just like them. So what Paul is saying is something that's very important for this church because even the church would be tempted to segregate according to the various barriers that exist in the world. And now what Paul is saying in this text, in verse 11 in particular, is that Christ is all and in all. That there are barriers that the world might see, but in Christ, these barriers come crashing down. That we are fundamentally not identified by whatever group we're a part of, but by the identity of our new relationship with Christ. That we are His, and He is ours, and He is in us, and we are in Him. And so these barriers need to be obliterated. And He needs to instruct the church to make sure they understand the doctrinal basis of their commitment to one another. I want to look at these barriers, because Paul just lists a bunch of them here in verse 11. Uh, these would have been barriers that the Colossian church would have been very familiar with, and they would have had to think these through. Well, how do I unite with people who are different from me? Well, let's think about the barriers. The first one he mentions right there, he says, here there is not, okay? It's that word, here there is not. These barriers in Christ cease to exist, okay? They don't exist. That's what he's saying. In the new identity, no more barriers. Here there is not. And he starts by talking about racial barriers, Greek and Jew. If you were a Jew in the first century, what was very likely is that you had been taught, perhaps, or had at least imbibed the mindset that because you were God's chosen people, Gentiles were all an inferior race to you. That was kind of there in the mindset. John Stott, kind of trying to help us understand this, writes in his commentary, he says, it's difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned between, or yawned in those days between the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other. The tragedy was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism. And it became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised the Gentiles as dogs. That's what Jews would sometimes call Gentiles. They would call them Gentile dogs and developed traditions which kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile. That's what they were taught. You're an Orthodox Jew, you don't go into the home of a Gentile. You don't do that because you'll become unclean. Or you would never invite such into your home. See, this was the nature of the barrier that Greeks and Jews were separate, and they were intended to remain separate, and many Jews despised the Gentile dogs around them, and they were seen as inferior. This was so pervasive in the early church that even when you read the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, is brought into the church, and his family with him, there's a big confusion about 
Are they on the same level as us? I mean, we're Jews. We're the people of God. Can Gentiles come in and, and be on the same level as us? They have a whole council about this in Acts chapter 15 where they have to sit down and figure out whether this is okay for Jews and Gentiles to be one body together. And so Peter has to stand up in Acts chapter 15, verse 11. He says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. In other words, Peter's saying, hey, if salvation is by grace, if it's not by our merit, if it's not by our ethnicity, then we must receive them just like anybody else because we're all getting in because of the grace of God and not by anything else we've done. By grace. Grace alone. That was kind of hard. I mean, it wasn't easy. I mean, you think about Peter throughout those chapters in the book of Acts. He wasn't really willing to give up some of his Jewishness from the, from the beginning. Even when he had walked with Jesus for all those years, and even when he had been taught by Jesus in the Gospels, he still had a hard time changing. Remember the dietary restrictions as a Jew that he would have adopted? And different times, again and again, uh, the Lord has a vision for Peter, and Peter has to learn that he's actually allowed to eat things that as a Jew he thought he could never eat. It took him a while. I mean, he's getting visions. He's still not quite getting it. Really, Lord, do you want me to do this? It took him a while to adjust. And how much more, even in the early church, were Jews, it just took them a while to adjust to the reality that Gentiles are being saved by grace. And so, therefore, they're enabled to be a part of the church just as one, just like anybody else. That was hard. There were racial barriers. There were also religious barriers, circumcised and uncircumcised. You see that there. In other words, there were some that had been highly and rigorously religious, and they had been Jews that had gotten themselves circumcised in the way that they were supposed to according to the Orthodox Jewish uh, teachings of the Old Testament. But there were some that weren't as religiously rigorous, and so they hadn't been. And Paul is saying, hey, the barriers that you might construct around who is and who isn't, that's obliterated too. There's not that. Here there is no Jew or Greek. Here there is no circumcised or uncircumcised. These things do not matter. They are not the foundation of our unity. We are not made more holy and closer to God because of these things we've done or not done. The religious barriers are abolished. There are cultural barriers. He mentions a couple names here. He goes barbarians and Scythians. Barbarians were people who were not civilized. The Greeks were civilized. They saw themselves as the educated ones. They were uh, well-learned and well-read, and these people would have looked at those kind of on the outskirts of Greek society as barbarians. And they called them barbarians. It's actually kind of a funny word. Even the Greek is kind of an onomatopoeia. That's a word that sounds like what it means. The reason they're called barbarians is because when someone that wasn't a part of Greek culture, spoke, and they usually would speak with a heavy accent. The Greeks couldn't understand them. It sounded like they were just saying bar, 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 and so they made up a name for it. They called it a barbarian, a barbarian. That's why we even get the English word today. Uh, a barbarian was someone who would be considered to be on the outskirts of society, someone who didn't understand the cultural norms. They would be coming from a different culture, and their language would have been harder to understand than if someone had just spoken your language. And then he mentions Scythians. These are cultural barriers. Barbarians, or cultural barriers, barbarians would have been a, you know, just different culture. Okay? Scythians were like barbarians, but even more extreme. These were people located to the north. They were on the northern coast of the Black Sea in uh, what's now called southern Ukraine. And the Scythians were 
were violent people. They were known, they had a reputation. They were known as being violent, uneducated, uncivilized, even savage. Josephus, the old historian during those days, wrote of them, and this is how he described Scythians. Now, as to the Scythians, they take pleasure in killing men and differ little from brute beasts. If that was the reputation, you do some research on the Scythians, they were violent, they were also some of the early adopters of tattoos, and they had figured out ways to mark their skins in a permanent way as a way to uh, identify themselves and intimidate those around them. Scythians were a scary people. If you were a common Greek individual in the Colossian church, and you receive this letter from Paul, and he tells you that Scythians could be one with you because of Christ, you would have said, what, them? The ones up there that, that are against us? The, the, one, the savages? The, the violent ones? But there were cultural barriers that existed. There were social barriers. He mentions slave and free. Slave and free. There ought to be no racial barriers. There ought to be no religious barriers. There ought to be no cultural barriers. And there ought to be no social barriers in the church because we're all in Christ. And so even slaves and free men can worship together before the Lord because that's not their identity. Their identity is not fundamentally uh, tied into what role they play in society. Their identity is in Christ. I mean, if you think about what slavery was in early Rome... Uh, Aristotle defined a slave like this. A slave is, quote, a living tool. A t as a tool is an inanimate slave. Is that what he's saying? He's saying a slave and a, and a hammer. What's the difference between these two objects? Uh, one, you've got to feed the slave. That's the difference. This is just a tool that's alive. Okay? A hammer is a tool, and this is a tool but this one is alive, so you've got to take care of it. That was Aristotle saying this is what slavery is. In other words, uh, the mindset of Greek culture being shaped by this worldview completely went against the imago Dei, the image of God in man, treating them as less than human. And yet Paul writes to them and says, hey, listen, in Christ, your status as a slave means nothing your status if you're free means nothing. Your status as a master means nothing. All of those are irrelevant in Christ. The unity that is, we have as a church is built on Jesus Christ and his gospel, not upon whatever status you have in society, not what kind of culture you have, not what kind of religious background you come out of, not what kind of race you're a part of. None of that is fundamentally the reason for our unity. All of our unity is transcendent because it's built on a transcendent gospel. So slaves in Christ, they're not tools, they're brothers, they're sisters. Masters, when they come into the church, they're not acting like masters, they're brothers and sisters. Christ is all. And in all, you see that there at the end of the verse 11, Christ is all and in all. What is he saying? I think this is what he means. Christ is the foundation for all unity because he indwells his people and he unites them together in himself 
and he is making up a new humanity comprised of people from every social group, every cultural group, every racial group. Barriers are being shattered, and in Christ, he's bringing all of us together in the gospel. Barriers are broken. Hearts are united. This is amazing to just even picture. Just, just in your imagination, you get this picture in your mind. You walk into the Colossian church, and you're observing. And there's a Jew over here who's been tempted all his life to think of Gentiles as less than, to think of them as dogs. And then you see the clean-cut religious background guy who's, who's got his life together, apparently. He's clean-cut and looks good. But then you got the irreligious, the former pagan right there next to him. And then you got a barbarian, maybe someone that has an accent, very hard for someone to understand. And then you got a Scythian, and he's got tattoos. And someone is, you know, some of this, this guy's really uh, tempting other people to be afraid of him. And just, he looks different. A lot of people are not quite sure. But then there's a slave, and then there's a master, and then there's a free man. And what do they do? They all stand shoulder to shoulder on the same playing field before the cross. And their brothers and their sisters and their identities are left at the door and they say, I am unworthy, but I have been redeemed by the blood of the Savior. And I've been reconciled to my God. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And in that humility before a holy God, they are united as one. Because all boasting has been excluded. And all pride has been cut out from under us because we have nothing to boast in when we think about the gospel. So why would we build barriers? Barriers are abolished at the cross. This doesn't mean that we act as if no distinctions exist, as if there's no such thing in reality as a Greek person or as a Jewish person or as all the different things here, slaves are free or circumcised or uncircumcised. It doesn't mean we act as if there's no such things as barbarians or Scythians. He's not saying that. It just simply is saying that fundamentally, foundationally, the ultimate reality is this, that we are united in the gospel, but not by the identities that we come out of. And here's the beauty of it, is because our unity is in Christ and in the gospel, we can actually rejoice in the diversity that God is building into his church. And we can celebrate that because that is exactly what's going to happen in heaven. Go to, go to Revelation 5. It's real quick, just to show you some of the beauty of what will take place in the eternal state. In Revelation chapter 5, and look at verse 9. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, Talking about Jesus, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to God, and they shall reign on the earth. You see, in heaven, it's all there. Different peoples and tribes and languages and nations are all there around the throne worshiping the Lamb. Turn to Revelation chapter 7. Verse 9 and 10, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Praise the Lord Jesus. He is saving people who look like all the different groups in the world. He is saving people from every social strata, from every ethnicity, from every nation, from every tribe. And he's bringing them in their unity. Their unity is in Christ. Worthy is the Lamb, is what they're saying. Worthy is the Lamb. Salvation belongs to Him. They're united in the gospel. In the church then, listen, the church then is a preview of that glorious day when all people are coming together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can have a unity with barbarians and Scythians and slaves and free and Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised because fundamentally those things don't define us. We are defined by the Lord Jesus Christ and He is all in in all and He unites us together. So let's think about, think about two, uh, two applications here. Two applications to this great reality that Jesus has prayed for unity. Here it is. Number one, unity is our birthright. Unity is our birthright. Jesus prayed for it. The gospel secured it. The spirit enables it. Barriers have been obliterated. Dividing walls have come crashing down. All are humbled before a holy, holy, holy God. We have all been reminded in the gospel of our great need of forgiveness because we're all sinners. We don't rank our sins against each other and see who's got the worst and who's, who's the better sin. We are all sinful before a holy God. And in Christ, in the gospel, he has worked out our salvation through his life and death and resurrection. And now the only reason we're saved is because of him. And so there's no grounds for boasting. We all equally come before him, and now we are reconciled to each other. Right? We're reconciled to each other. So everything, listen, everything needed for true, real, Deep unity has already been accomplished. In any ideology that wants to build these barriers back up and use them as reasons to remain segregated is working against the gospel. The gospel has already said, objectively, we are united in Christ. He is all and is in all. And so there's a sense in which it's already been done. Unity has already been given. Unity is already an objective reality handed down from God to this church. It says, this is who you are. This is your identity. And yet, and this is where we're going to slip into our, our second point. You have been justified, Christian. But does that mean you stop pursuing righteousness? See, the moment you believe, you have been declared righteous. That's the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law. The moment you repented of your sin and you looked to Christ to be your Savior, you were declared righteous. That is an objective judgment that God has given you, handed down from heaven. You are righteous. You will never change your righteousness. It is objectively and unalterably perfect. 
and exists forever. However, what Paul also teaches, and what the Scriptures tell us, is that we have been declared righteous, but now, what do we do? We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We pursue the righteousness that is ours by birthright. And so here's what I'm saying about unity, is that it has been given to us, it is objectively ours, it is a gift of God, and yet, here's point number two, unity must be maintained. Unity must be cultivated. Unity must be pursued. Why is Paul teaching what he's teaching in Colossians 3? I mean, why does he even have to bring it up? Why does he bring it up in Colossians? Why does he bring it up in Galatians? Why does he bring it up in Ephesians? Why does he bring it up in 1 Corinthians? Why in nearly every letter that he writes, he's talking about the need to pursue unity. Why? Because we are prone to just assume that unity will happen sometimes. And just think like, oh, yeah, it's been given to us. And it's the same error as the Christian who thinks that because his sins are forgiven, he doesn't need to actually pursue righteousness. Unity is our birthright, and yet the Scriptures repeatedly call us to pursue it. Ephesians 4.3, we ought to be eager to maintain, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Eager, proactive. Maintain, that's an active verb. Hebrews 12.14, strive for peace with everyone. Strive, that's work hard. Go to great lengths. Make sure we're creating peace and unity in the church. In other words, listen, unity is our birthright, church. It is a gift from God. Objectively, because our new identity in Christ. However, we are called to pursue it, cultivate it. And I think if we're to just tease out what Colossians 3.11 is saying where he's mentioning Jews and Greeks and circumcised and uncircumcised and barbarians and all the different categories. I think he would also say, hey, Jews and Greeks, pursue unity with one another because there's a worldly temptation to build a big wall there. So you got to enact the unity that God says you have. Hey, you're afraid of Scythians? You don't want to talk to them because you're afraid? Hey, go talk to them because you have a unity In other words, it's work. It's work for slaves and masters to maintain unity. It's heart work, right? It's heart work where we are always humbling ourselves, reminding ourselves of the gospel, reminding ourselves that salvation is by grace, not anything else, by grace. And then we work to unite with the people God has united us with objectively. See, unity in this sense is much harder to preserve than doctrine. It is possible for a church to have an immaculate doctrinal statement. Perfect. And for everybody in that church to look at it and sign it off saying, this is perfect and I agree 100%. Possible. It's also possible that our hearts though we are affirming in our minds the truths of the gospel and the doctrines of the scriptures, it is possible that we drift away from each other because we're not actually pursuing the unity God has given us. And division will creep in, not because we're all disagreeing about doctrine, but because we're actually not pursuing the unity that God has given us. 
I want to show you just a, a great example of this in Scripture. Uh, you can turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, where Peter and Paul have this great confrontation. I mean, think of it. Peter and Paul, pillars of the early church. Peter knew Jesus personally while he was on earth, walked with him, knew him, had conversations with him, was one of the inner three. And Paul comes later. And Paul had great experiences with the Lord Jesus as well, post-resurrection Christ. And these two men in the early church have a standoff in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. John Stott calls this one of the most intense and dramatic episodes in the New Testament. Look at verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter, Peter came, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I love Paul. Don't you love Paul? He is a pit bull when it comes to protecting the gospel. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's strong language, Paul. Peter, the apostle of the church, stands condemned? Well, what did he do? Clearly, he must have written some book on that contained heresy in it, right? Clearly, he must have been passed around pamphlets that were divisive or something, right? No? Watch this. It's much more subtle than that. For before certain men came from James, James was the pastor of the Jerusalem church. These are likely Jewish men coming from James's church. He, that's Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. So let's get the picture. Peter is enjoying meals with Gentiles. This is an amazing accomplishment of the gospel. The gospel is uniting Peter this Jewish man who all his life had thought of Jews a certain way, and now he's been so transformed by the gospel, he's now eating with them. They're sharing a meal together. There's unity there. But then some people from James come, from, some Jewish men from James's church show up. What does Peter do? Look at this. When they came, he drew back and separated himself. He's enjoying this fellowship, but then he's afraid of what the Jews might think if they see him eating with Gentiles. So, so he fears them. He separates from them. Why did he separate? Fearing. Fear. Fearing the circumcision part. He was afraid. He didn't publish a heretical book. He wasn't preaching false doctrine in Sunday school. He got afraid. And he withdrew. See how subtle that is? You see how subtle it is? And I'm sure that Peter could have rationalized this a million different ways. Oh, I already knew these people better. Oh, it's no big deal. I, I don't normally talk to these people anyway. This is really my close you know, friend group. But Paul calls it out what it is. Look at this. And the rest of the Jews, verse 13, they, they acted hypocritically along with them. So that even Barnabas was led astray. You see, it's hypocrisy because Peter was the one preaching that Jews and Gentiles can be reunited. <laughs> he was the one doing it. And now here he is dis disuniting with them, separating from them because he's afraid of what people might think. And he leads the whole church into this hypocrisy. But I want you to really note verse 14. Pay attention to verse 14. Maybe even mark it down. Certainly remember this. He says this. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth 
of the gospel. You see it? He wasn't preaching a false gospel. He was living in such a way that undermined the gospel. He wasn't passing around heretical tracts. He was merely allowing his fear to go the opposite direction the gospel would have pushed him. It is so subtle. It's so easy to justify. It was his fear. And his fear now becomes a gospel issue. The gospel is at stake. Oh man, this has a lot of application, doesn't it? That we can be people who believe the gospel doctrine and teach the gospel truths and we are committed to that sound doctrinal statement and because of that we pat ourselves on the back as if we are doing all that the gospel demands. But we will undermine we will break the legs of our gospel witness if with our words we preach a gospel, but with our lives we let fear, discomfort, or you name it, cause us to separate from people that the gospel would unite us with. It's so subtle. Oh, it's no big deal. I didn't greet that person. It's no big deal. I never associate with that group. Sorry, this other group I always fellowship with. That's no big deal. I ignored that family. I'm sure someone spoke to them. And could it be that there are often times that it's it's fear? Fear of awkwardness, fear of different cultures, fear of the barriers that have that are up, fear of being known, fear of reaching out. Could it be that that is the acid that is going to undermine our gospel witness? backgrounds, different backgrounds, different experiences, different opinions have always existed. Christ in the gospel unites us all together, but there are more subtle dangers at play here. There are issues of our hearts that might cause us to compromise the gospel just as Peter did, where we are afraid of walking across the room and inviting ourselves into the lives of people who are different than us. Paul gets aggressive. I mean, read it. Paul is absolutely in Peter's face. You're out of step with the gospel because you're living out of step with the truth you proclaim. You're separating from people that the gospel says you are united with, and you're letting fear control you and not love. So it's possible to have a church that is committed to the gospel message and yet the gospel culture and the gospel unity preaching something else. Is it possible to have a clear gospel from the pulpit but in the relationships of the lives of the church members there's a distorted gospel where there are people who are unwilling to associate with other people because they're afraid or uncomfortable, or you name it. See, remember, go back to John 17. Why did Jesus pray for the unity of his church? Why did he ask, I want the church to be one, like you and I are one, Father? Why did he pray that? That the world would know that Christ has come, that the gospel's true. 
Unity is not just an in here thing. Unity has implications for the community that God has put us in. And if we are not united in here, if there are barriers in here that we have constructed, even though the gospel says they're gone, if we have barriers in here that we are divided from people that God has called us to be united with, if that's the case, then we are undermining the gospel. And if we're doing that, the witness that we are intended to have to the community is also compromised. You walk into my office, I got books, all kinds of books, hundreds of books, hundreds of thousands of pages represented by all the books there in my office. And I'm trying to get my neighbors to come to know the gospel, that they might be saved. And you are too. You know what? They're not going to read any of those pages in my office. They're not going to be interested in the big theological poems I have. They, they don't care, at least not yet. But they're going to watch me. They're going to watch the way I treat my wife. They're going to watch the way I treat my kids. And Lord willing, when they walk in through these doors, they're going to watch us. And they're going to watch the way we treat each other. They're going to watch the way we either have unity or we not have unity. Right? And our relationships and our community and the unity we have will say something to that person without any words. And so the gospel that might be proclaimed could be undercut and rendered irrelevant if the church is actually not united in the gospel. Does the gospel really reconcile man to God and brother to brother and sister to sister? Does the gospel do that? We say resoundingly, yes, but our lives will either prove it or disprove it, right? And so we are called to live out the realities of the gospel. Okay, so let's make this really practical. You go to First Baptist Church of Colossae. You walk in the door. And you're part of that church. And you've been worshiping there. And suddenly, a group of Scythians show up. They got tattoos. They got bad reputations. They got a history of violence. These Scythians repent of their sin and come to receive the grace of God just like you. What do you do? You know what you first do? You say, here in Christ, there's not a Greek or a Jew or a circumcised or uncircumcised or barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. You recognize the theological unity you have with that brother or sister who is so different from you that there's a unity you have. But you don't stop there. Then you say, okay, do I have any fears? Any prejudices? Am I going to play favorites that might cause me to deny the gospel I believe? How do I apply the reality of the unit I have in right now living so that I'm united with people who are so utterly different than me? See, I think that we need to go to great lengths to enact and practice and apply the gospel that says that we are united. And we need to make sure we're taking proactive steps to go across any perceived barrier that the world has up. And we got to say, in Christ, we are one. 
bought by the blood of Christ. And we have unity in him. Listen, there are issues in the world right now, right? You haven't had your head in a hole the last few months, right? There are issues in the world right now that are great temptations to divide. I believe that we're going to see a bunch of church splits after this time. I think there's churches that are going to be hurting. I mean, think about what's happened the last few months. Shut down corporate worship, lock people in their homes for three months, raise the temperature with all manner of terrifying news. In confusion, you can't even tell what's true anymore, it seems. Then you light a powder keg, it explodes with all kinds of really difficult issues that require a lot of sensitivity and thought and prayer to disentangle all the things going on. There's a lot of temptation for division right now, right? And I praise the Lord that I sense there's a high degree of trust right now in our congregation and unity in the gospel in our church. Praise the Lord for that. However, we must continually come back to the theological and doctrinal foundation for our unity, that is Christ is all and in all, and work, cultivate, be proactive to pursue the unity that has been objectively given to us in the gospel. So This is a call to action, church. If there are any groups of people that we would not be willing to associate with for whatever reason. That's a barrier that has been shattered. And that we need to enact unity and pursue unity by remembering we're in Christ. So we shake hands across whatever barrier that might be perceived to be up and working against us. We work for the unity. We maintain it. We cultivate it. We pray for it. Let's wrap it up with this. There was a uh, sociologist that a few, some, some number of years ago was writing a thesis and had theories on the nature of groups and why groups uh, come together, what holds them together. And he had all kinds of theories about uh, that they stay, that groups you know, come together because of common backgrounds and common politics and common life stages and, and things like that. And uh, as a part of his own study, he decided to attend a church, a church that was multi-generational, multi-ethnic, a church with a lot of different types of people represented there, and he wanted to see if, it, if his thesis would hold. And so he attended the church. Well, after being there for a number of weeks, he began to be so utterly confused because his thesis was being blown out of the water. Because every theory that he had for why people actually uh, not only uh, gather together one day a week, but why they actually live life together and bear burdens together and share meals together and open up deep issues in their hearts together. And they go through all this stuff together. And he was realizing it has nothing to do with some of these barriers that the world puts up. And, and the world thinks that the only reason people can be united is if they have common interests, common politics, common backgrounds, common experiences. And he realized there's, none of my theory is holding any water. So he went to the leaders. So what's going on here? Why is it that everyone wants to be here, but not only be here, they want to be in each other's lives? What is it? You know the answer. The leaders say, well, let me tell you the gospel about a holy God and a sinful humanity and a reconciling Savior who conquers death and unites them in himself. 
and fills them with the Spirit and calls them on a mission. Listen, they're not united for any outward external identity, but in Christ. The sociologist got saved. Became a part of that church. And stopped writing those papers that he thought he knew the reasons why people actually got together. Because he realized it was Christ. Supernatural. Transcendent power of the gospel. Friends, we have this unity. It's been given to us. It's our birthright. We praise God for it. But in the midst of global upheaval, which is what these days are, we must work for it. Be proactive. Believing the gospel, crossing any barriers that we would think might separate us. Because we know in Christ, barriers are no more. Here there is not Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave-free, barbarian, Scythian. None of these barriers exist in the gospel. What is it? Christ is all, and he's in all. It's all for him. Next week, well, how do we actually live together with different opinions? So this was an introduction to that. Let's pray. So Lord, this is something that you have prayed for. Lord, I'm thankful that you get that which you pray for. That you, Father, will not deny giving good gifts to your Son. And your Son, Jesus, you have asked for this. And so, Lord, we ask for the strength and the ability and the, the different things we need. We ask for them that we would be able to enact the unity you've promised to us. That we might be a preview of heaven where all nations, tribes, tongues are united in worship of the King of Kings. Do this for your name's sake, for your own glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.